Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 29 talking about the seventh bowl of wrath and this bizarre image of a woman riding the dragon, riding the beast. But before we get into that, if there is any session that we should probably start with a word of prayer, it's this one. So Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne today, we ask that you would give us understanding in the midst of these words, that we might draw truth from them and that we might better understand both your plan for the future as well as our place in your kingdom. Help us now, we pray, in the most holy name of Christ. Amen. Well, as was the case with everything else we've been studying, we've, we've now entered into the seven bowls of wrath. We've gone through the seven seals, which split open at seal number seven into the seven trumpets, which in turn prompted the seven vials of God's wrath. And we're in the gathering of Armageddon and the effects of the, of the seventh vial of wrath. So in the previous session, we covered five of the seven. We covered the judgment of sores, which was targeting those that had disfigured the image of God that they carry by disfiguring the mark of the beast that they chose to get to get instead. Uh, sores again boils, more literally, uh, an outward sign of an inward corruption. There was the judgment on the sea, turning the sea into the blood of a dead man, or like the blood of a dead man, which the sea is always emblematic of trade, of greed, of, of economic uh, reliance. So it's a judgment against the God of money, or the, as we've heard, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money, the giving up of all else in favor of money. Then we see the judgment on fresh water, which we later find was poetic justice because of the persecution of the saints. God's effectively telling them, well, if you want to spill blood, here you go. Then there was a judgment of darkness, which is, is a judgment against those who are trying to put uh, God's wisdom aside for the foolishness of, of humanity. So God literally blankets them in darkness, but not just an absence of light, but a darkness that is tangible. It actually causes pain, so much so that the Word of God declares in the previous chapter that it causes them to gnash on their tongue, then the sun is actually empowered to burn the people of the planet, burn but apparently not kill, as we believe was a prelude to their condemnation. So there is an error from last session that I also wanted to cover. Um, in your scripture, it talks of three frogs emerging from the dragon, from the sea beast, and from the false prophet. 
Now, a cursory reading of Scripture would make you think that we're talking about three frogs emerging from each person. But in some of my commentaries, it, it suggests that, no, you're talking about one frog from each person, one frog from the dragon, one frog from the beast, one unclean spirit from the false prophet. But whichever the case may be, the image of a frog is also something that I didn't cover Again, there is so much stuff in what we're about to be exposed to that it takes time, and my apologies for having to recover stuff along these lines. But um, frogs are ceremonially unclean. That's one thing. So when, when we say that, that a demonic spirit like unto a frog emerges, one of the things that that like unto means is that the creature is unclean, that they're not of God. Secondly, uh, in a prophetic image kind of way, frogs are constantly making noise, which kind of gives you insight as to the, um, the purpose of these unclean spirits or these demons that are going out, that their job is to constantly whisper into the ears of their intended victims. Frogs are again attributed to unclean, or excuse me, to pagan practices which is one of the reasons that they're used as a judgment in Egypt, in the book of Exodus. And last, prophetically, they're also seen as a living snare because of what they do. An unsuspecting insect comes by and instant death, or at least instant capture, a trap that leads unto death. So what we can gather from this prophetic image is that the purpose behind these unclean spirits whether three or nine, is that they are, one, they are demonic, two, they are assigned the, the, the job of whispering into the ears or, or influencing the power structures of the time in such a way that leads them to their own deaths. Everybody clear on that one? So you will never look at a frog the same way again. Let's move on. These are biblical frogs. These are prophetic images, not the actual living creature. I know some of you have a thing for frogs, but let's move on. Uh, the sixth bowl of wrath was the one that we just ended on. And again, there was a lot that I wanted to talk to you about that. In the sixth, the pouring out of the sixth bowl, the Euphrates River was caused to dry up so that the, kins, the kings from the east may cross the border and... Uh, run into a, a subset of the Jezreel Valley, an area, excuse me, around uh, just a little south and to the west of the Sea of Galilee called Armageddon, which in our colloquial tongue we know as Armageddon. The Euphrates River, remember, is the northeasternmost border of ancient Israel in that it's the, the land of promise. When God sets out the boundary of the land that he's promised to Abraham that his descendants will inherit, the Euphrates River's west bank is its border. Okay, To date, that prophecy has not been fulfilled. That's something that else that you need to keep a, a kind of a pen in. But if that river is dried up, the purpose of that river being dried up is so that, uh, that the corrupted Israel can be attacked. So these demonic spirits are sent to influence the rulers of the, the area. Are they abandoning the beast? That's one question. Are they exercising themselves from the land beast and the sea beast? Because 
after all these plagues, they see these two people now as being useless and ineffective, so they'll go out and do this other thing. Are they sent out deliberately as messengers, as the wording suggests, uh, they're going to be messengers of the enemy no matter what, but uh, their purpose is to assemble armies literally to attack God. And there's a reference to this in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, where the prophet writes, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for a holy war. Rouse the warriors. Let the men of war advance and attack. Beat your plows into swords and your pruning knives into spears. Now in other passages of Scripture, we see the opposite happening. Basically, let everybody, whether they're weak or strong, let everybody, whether an agriculturalist or a plumber, grab everything that you can, turn it into a weapon and become a soldier and face me. Let even the weaklings say, I am a warrior. Come quickly, all of you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves. Bring down your warriors here, Lord. Let the nations be roused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit down to judge all of the surrounding nations. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Now I want you to pay attention to this. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. What is wrong with that statement? You don't harvest grapes with a sickle. This is a direct co-occurrence with what we just read last session in the book of, uh, last, in the last sessions in the book of Revelation. When the grapes of wrath were being harvested by the earth, Christ was given what kind of instrument? A sickle. And when it comes down, and, and it, that's, that's an odd image because again, you don't pluck grapes with a sickle and tear down the, risk tearing down the whole vine. You use a pruning, uh, pruning knife, or in our case, a pr- pair of shears. So here, Joel and, and John are on the same image. Come trample the grapes because the wine press is full, the wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Again, uh, linking these wine grapes with the wrath of God. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. Heaven and earth will shake. Seems like I've heard of this thing happening before somewhere. But the Lord will be, the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the Israelites. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who dwells from Zion. My holy mountain Jerusalem will be holy and the foreigners will never overrun it again. Do you see now the connected tissue between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God? There is no difference. God declares that he's the same today as he was yesterday and will be what? Forevermore. So let's get that image out of our minds that there's a separate God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same God. Jesus came not to to end the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion, and to usher in a more direct means of grace. This is true, but He's still God. He is still a God of righteousness. He is still a God of justice and judgment. So anyway, it's the same message in two different Testaments. The Old Testament, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament 
revealed. So the armies from the north and from the east gather together in a place called Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. Now, from the roots in Hebrew, it means one of two things. According to the outline of biblical usage, it translates into the place of crowds, which certainly kind of befits what we're talking about here, but it also translates in Strong's definitions to the place of the rendezvous, the place of the gathering. And Megiddo has a long and very bloody history. Armageddon is not just for this one specific battle. This was the place for De- this, the region of Armageddon, the region of Megiddo, including the surrounding mountains and the valley system, is where Deborah and Barak defeated Jabin in Judges chapter 4, where Gideon's 300, uh, 300 defeated the Midianites in Judges 7, where Samson, after a long campaign, defeated the Philistines in Judges 15 and 16, where King Saul ultimately died by the, uh, but was defeated by the Philistines and then died in 1 Samuel 31, and where Josiah was defeated by uh, Emperor, uh, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt in 2 Kings 23. So there is a long history of battles in this region, and as you can see from the map, the borders of Babylon on the Euphrates River are almost exactly across from the Megiddo Valley, from Armageddon. It's almost a straight shot once the river is dried up. Now, this, this map uh, talks about the, the early kingdom, the kingdom under the, uh, excuse me, the, the kingdom under David. And you see that Megiddo is fairly close to the Mediterranean Ocean. It's just to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus grew up. This is what the city looked like in the time before Christ, in 900 BC, where it was basically used as an outpost, a regional outpost, in, uh, having also a governor's palace there. It's a mountaintop fortress that overlooks a vast mountain ridge and valley system. This is what it looks like if you were to ever fly across it. What is one of the most basic rules of warfare made famous, unfortunately, by Star Wars? I have the high ground. Megiddo is nothing but high ground overlooking where the armies will gather in the lowlands. That's why it was used there as a fortress. In fact, as he was coming back, from his campaign in Egypt, Napoleon Bonaparte himself looked over the area and declared that this was a perfect place for a war. Now, the battle itself is actually going to be described for us uh, as the defeat of the nations later on in chapter 19. But as of the pouring out of that particular bowl of wrath, this is where the armies of the nations have gathered themselves, where God will eventually judge them. So... Uh, the final plague. Excuse me, that was supposed to be Revelation 16. All right, starting with verse 17, the, then the seventh angel, in this case, poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of, this, out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now in your copy of God's word that I hope that you're following along with us on, 
underline that phrase, it is done. Because you might be tempted to think of it as the same thing that Jesus Christ from the cross. It is not. The word that Jesus utters from the cross is rendered into Greek is tetelestai, meaning paid in full. This is different. 18, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like none other since, since people have been on the earth. So great was the earthquake. Now, after each series of plagues or judgments in the book of Revelation, after each collection of sevens, you get this collection of natural disasters. So this follows that pattern. But this earthquake is unique, as we'll find in just a second. The great city... Underline that in your copy of God's Word as well. Split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Now, I'll, put this, I'll add this in for your notes, right in your notes. Incidentally, if you want to, take a, uh, to grab a copy of our handouts for these lectures, and you're online, you can find them on our website at Highlawn Baptist Church. That's all one word spelled out, dot O-R-G. They're available for you to print out for yourselves. Um, also, if you'd like to support the missions and the ministries that we do here, um, please do so. We, we value your encouragement. While I'm on the subject, please go ahead and like this video. If you get anything out of our uh, teachings here, help us make the Word of God known by liking the video now, interacting with us on the comment section. If you have a question that comes up from it, please Use the live comments now so we can address it while we're recording. All of these lectures are being archived on our YouTube channel. But the more that we get any kind of interaction, the likes, the subscribes especially, but also in the comments section, both live comments and posted comments, the more of that that generates, the more likely that these videos are to appear in somebody's feed. So that's a very simple way that you can help us get the word out and help these messages, help the word of God be known to fulfill our mission to know Christ and to make Christ known. So please help us out in this way. Let's go on with the word of God now. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Whenever you see the word nations, more often than not, that does not refer to political entities with well-defined geographic boundaries. That refers to the peoples of the earth that are not Jewish, that are unbelievers. In other words, the Gentiles. In other passages of Scripture, in the book of the prophets, you'll see even Jesus' hometown as uh, Nazareth of the nations, meaning that the city had a giant population of a diverse group of people from the Gentile races. So anytime you see the word nations there, it does not necessarily always mean a political entity, but more often than not, it means the groups of unbelieving peoples. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence, and he gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. You can link that with the vial of wrath. Every island fled. This is unique about this particular earthquake that's about, that, that is going to be experienced. Every island fled or could not be seen anymore. The mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones. This is a more direct judgment. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds. In some of your translations, 
it's left untranslated in the word talent. We'll get on to that in just a second. But each weighing about 100 pounds fell from the sky on people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. Now this is the judgment of the seventh bowl, which also concludes all of the rest. As God himself declares from behind the throne, excuse me, from behind, uh, from, from the altar, it is finished, it is completed, it is done. This is a judgment is delivered through the air. And God himself declares the final plague being delivered. The next judgments that you see in the book of Revelation will be, ju- will be delivered directly by him. In the case of Jesus, by the tip of a sword. Again, this is a repeating sign of a set of judgments being completed. The voices, thunders, lightnings, and a great earthquake. But again, this earthquake is more severe than the two others previously mentioned. The cities of the nations were destroyed as mentioned. The, Gal- the Gentiles, or the unbelievers, um, the Galilee of the nations, excuse me, not Nazareth of the nations. Please pardon me. Uh, the islands and the mountains were both reduced. Now this has happened before where the great earthquake hits and the islands and the mountains change their places. But during this earthquake, what happens? They're gone. Every mountain shall be brought low. Anyway, the word for it is done here is not tetelestai. It is genomai, genomai, which means to come into existence. In the case of actions, it means to come to pass, to appear in history, or to be made unto completion, to be finished. Like as if you were making something by hand, and finally you can step back from that and say it is It's done. It's finished. The painting is done. It's perfect. I'm going to step away. In other words, the work of God through his judgments in this manner, through the plagues, as John tells us earlier, through the plagues has been completed. Nobody has paid for grace here. Jesus does not, as the high priest, pray for the world, the unbelievers, the nations. He prays constantly for who? For you, the believers, the chosen, the called ones, the the redeemed by the blood of of himself. To arise, to appear in history, to be made, to be completed, to finish. Now, this could relate to a couple of different things. Uh, The work of that human history is complete, but that's not the case. Incidentally, these are uh, different examples that I found in my readings. Human history is not completed because we have the millennial kingdom yet to experience. I believe just the second point that is referring directly to the work of wrath in the case of the plagues upon the earth. So let's continue on. We also see that the great city was split into three pieces. Now, which great city are we talking about? I covered Rome previously, so that leaves us with two uh, suspects. The first one is Babylon which is the city of the fallen, the city of mankind. The other one, unfortunately, is also Jerusalem. 
which as we found out in chapter 11, is a city of God, but it is a city corrupted. And there are a few things that I want to point out to you. First of all, whenever Babylon is called the great, it is never left to question. That great city Babylon or Babylon the great, it's always together. But the only time that we hear the words, the great city, is in chapter 11, verse 8, when, the, when Jerusalem is identified, but the name is never spoken because Jerusalem is still a corrupted city. It remains unnamed all throughout Revelation until it is rebuilt by God, until we see the new Jerusalem come down from heaven. And we hear that the old things and the old order of things have been passed away. But Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, that name is never said or never written in the book of Revelation except for the new Jerusalem that God himself is building. Do you, are you with me there so far? Okay, so when he says the great city, at least if the pattern of 11.8 holds, he's talking about Jerusalem. And we actually see in Zechariah 14.4 that part of the city, actually the Mount of Olives, splits in two. I think in an echo of this case. Jerusalem splits into three pieces, but this is one of those splits where Jesus, when Jesus arrives upon the Mount of Olives. Let's continue on. And again, this is at least one split into two pieces, but Revelation says it will be split into a totality of three, session, uh, three pieces. Judgment through the air. The prince of the power of the air is who? Satan himself. So in a way, these judgments are God's reinforcing that you might think that you are the God of this world, but nature itself can be turned on you. We've talked about, unfortunately, there's, there's a link in some of my commentaries with the old Greek philosophical elements, the, the old pagan elements of uh, wind, water, fire, and air, or excuse me, earth, air, wind, and water. Now, this is very much a Greek idiom, a pagan idiom, a philosophical understanding, not a religious one. It gets kind of co-opted into to paganism later on. And delved into natural uh, philosophy until it's eventually debunked in the 1700s, but it's not a part of the Jewish mindset. It was popular, however, during John's day. And there are some commentarians that say that these seven last judgments were basically God using those four elements to say, no, I control nature, you don't. Uh, and while that is entirely the case, I don't think that God had those four elements in mind. And I also want to warn you about something, too, while I'm on the topic. Um, there are many commentarians that I consult that mention that John used these philosophies, that he used these images to make his point. Now, that suggests that this is not a book of prophecy. It suggests that the commentarians believe that John is pinning down a story as a fiction, perhaps a divinely inspired fiction, but nevertheless a fiction. John himself declares this not to be true. He calls this a book of prophecy. In fact, he talks of his own experience here. I heard, I saw, I witnessed, I did. I was called up. 
He is not writing down a story or a narrative. He's writing down a set of experiences. That's the difference. So be careful what you consult when you learn about something. Okay, I do have a very high opinion of, of biblical infallibility and of, of biblical inspiration. This is true. Why? Because I have a very high opinion of God and believe that a God who is perfect and who is loving and who is just and who is righteous would never send us a document explaining himself and our relationship to himself that is filled with lies, deceit, and fiction. But again, that's me. I consider the rest to be, borderline, uh, well, I consider uh, the rest to be invalid, but moving on. So God is effectively saying to the enemy that you might control the political structures and you might have influence to a fallen people, but I control nature because I created it. So through these judgments, particularly this last one, God delivers a judgment against blasphemers, murderers, persecutors, and so on. The people who have denied his name and chosen the mark of the beast instead of their image of God, choosing God. And they've hardened their hearts against him even now. Here's the question. What is the legal requirement? What is the legal remedy for a blasphemer of God in, the, in God's law? They're stoned to death. In fact, stoning is the only method of execution uh, provided for in the law of God. So what is the bowl of wrath basically doing? <laughs> it is God's judgment. It is stoning the blasphemers who characterize themselves as worshipers of the beast. Now, the stoning themselves is quite interesting. Hail of a talent's weight. Now, there's a lot of variation, in, depending on the sources you consult, as to how big these stones are. According to the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible, they're about, give or take, 75 pounds. Uh, but they're, according to the outline of biblical usage, there can be differing weights based on the substance. Uh, silver, a talent of silver is approximately 100 pounds, according to it. Gold, approximately 200. We just read from the Christian Standard uh, Version that it's, give or take, about 100 pounds. Now, this is from Josephus. In his writing of the Jewish Wars, it comes from Book 5, uh, where he is describing the stones that were used in the catapults of Rome to, to level the city wall of Jerusalem. And he writes that these stones that were cast, in other words, they were carved up so they would fit exactly into these catapults, were of the weight of a talent. And the commentarian says about 71 pounds. And through these catapults were carried about two furlongs, or 1,320 feet, and farther. The blow they gave was in no way to be sustained, not only by those who stood first in the way, but by those who were beyond them for a great space. In other words, these stones did damage. They knocked down the fortifications of the capital city of Israel at the time and were not something to be considered mild. So imagine what, uh, what the people of earth are going through at this time. When a hailstorm is descending upon them with hail the size of a boulder. 
This is also reminiscent, again, of the seventh plague of Egypt. Uh, It's a decisive measure in Joshua's battle against the Amorites in Joshua chapter 10. Again, it's the only legal method of capital punishment in ancient Israel. It's symbolic, prophetically, of God's condemnation. And yet, after everything that these people have gone through, after after the oceans turn to blood, the rivers turn to blood, the sun decides to burn them, after all of this, there is still no sign of repentance. If anything, their hearts just get hardened more. So now, Revelation 17. A woman rides the beast. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, and I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. Then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. This is a beast that we've seen before that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. That last bit is important. Notice that it is not lumped in with the rest of the jewels. It's important for symbolic reasons, for a prophetic reason. Going on, she had a golden cup in her hand, filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. On her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So what do we know again about Babylon? It was a city organized, it was a city of organized rebellion against God. Again, we talked about the first emperor of Babylon, who was essentially the first emperor of all the earth, Nimrod, back from the book of Genesis. It was a global empire with a central ruler. It had a military force that was has always been against the people of God. It is the birthplace and the center point from which all paganism spreads. That's why it's known uh, here as the mother of prostitutes. All ungodliness, the the forgetting of who the Creator God is in favor of gods that we make in our image, that all happens here at Babylon. Declaring a person who is the king to be a god begins here at Babylon. It is proclaimed that the Lord will destroy and silence her in multiple places in Scripture, particularly in Jeremiah 51 and 55. And according to the, uh, according to the prophet Micah, the Assyrians will be conquered by Christ himself. That has, of course, yet to happen. Now, I'm going to share a little Scripture with you in Micah 5 that I want you to uh, follow along with because... <sighs> We hear only a snippet of this, but we hear a snippet of it every single year. Out of context. Not knowing the full intent of its meaning. Micah 5.1, now, 
Daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem Ephrata. And you know where I'm going with this. You are small among the clans of Judah, yet one will come to you, one will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from the ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. They're not necessarily just talking about Mary here. There's another woman clothed with the sun, moon, and stars that comes to mind. And I'll explain why as we read. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod. Note that passage, the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. How many of you knew that was there? Okay, we hear that one passage every year around Christmas. Blessed are you, Bethlehem Ephrata, for from you, even though you're the least of the clans of Judah, one will come from you whose origin was foretold from the ancient of days, from the ancient times. But we never get the context that the reason that the woman in travail uh, gives birth when the man-child is born, when the body of Christ comes, or when Christ himself comes, depending upon how you want to interpret that from the book of Revelation, he's going to destroy the, army, the armies that come from Babylon in the same image of Nimrod, the ruler of the earth. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So again, Babylon is the birthplace of spiritual adultery, of spiritual inchastity, of... of committing an act of defilement upon oneself by making oneself the object of worship. When you cast an idol in your image, or when you go to an idol that values what you value, when you transform your image of God instead of you being transformed by God as his image bearer, then you commit adultery against God. You commit infidelity in the highest order. That's why marriage is symbolic, is, is, is prophetically symbolic of dedication and obedience to one's creator. It's a covenantal commitment. Every time that we have a relationship with God, we need to understand that it is a covenantal commitment bound and sustained by grace. Bound by love, sustained by grace. When we worship in rebellion, another 
it is considered adultery. Now, there's a difference between adultery and fornication. Fornication refers to uh, intimate, intimate intercourse um, outside of marriage, never having been married. Adultery is after having been married. It's adultery in our case because we come to God. It's fornication in the case of non-believers who have never known God, but that's splitting hairs. Let's go on. The mother of harlots, meaning that she is the birthplace of paganism and idolatry. And emperor worship as well, if you want to put that in your notes. So here are the metaphorical truths behind what the Bible describes as spiritual harlotry or spiritual prostitution. There is the, the two guilty parties here, the enticer and the enticed. To the enticer, idolatry is pretended devotion, just like it would be with a prostitute. For the enticed, it's what they can get out of it. It's not real love. It's not real agape love. It's, it's just the self-focus of pride. What can I get from worship? What can I get from the sacrifice to idols? What power will that fake God give me? What favors can I pull from it? On the, on the part of the enticer, it's also feigned love for profit, for money. They get something out of it. In the case of, of Satan, he gets another soul condemned that he gets to point to and declare God's uh, creation to be fallible, fallen. To the, to the enticed, it's hypocrisy. Declaring love that isn't love, an act of love that is lust instead. To the enticer, this is intimacy for a favor. To the enticed, it's an outflow of the sins of lust, of greed, and of envy. I want what I shouldn't have. I want more of what I cannot have. I want for me. To the enticer, it's pleasure for pay. To the enticed, it's an infidelity that results in weakness. Weakening yourself financially. Weakening yourself physically. Weakening yourself spiritually. Do you see why that's a powerful image? So false religion results in persecution in this image that we see of the woman riding the beast. She is drunk from what she consumes out of a golden cup. Golden cup, reminiscent of royalty, of riches, of influence. The overall interpretation is that this is enforced or systematized paganism. Uh, that you can't worship the way that you want to worship. You couldn't worship the one true God even if you wanted to. Because unless you take the mark of the beast, you will starve to death. This is enforced paganism. And she's reaping the benefits of it. She's drinking or taking pleasure from spiritual rebellion against God, which is linked to the blood of the saints. Her pleasure is derived from the persecution of the faithful to God. So she entices, the rest of the people of the world come to her. They want pleasure. They want happiness, which again, uh, the root word of happiness is happenstance. It means that there has to be something that makes you happy. It's therefore not joy. It is not that condition of uplifting that sustains you. It is instead something that is there and then is taken away, which makes it addictive. You all have had experience with knowing somebody that, that has an addictive relationship with a substance. 
What happens? They get the substance, they're happy or elated, they, they get euphoric for a, a period of time, and then what happens? They, they crash. And they are, uh, they, they are willing to do anything to get that again. So they'll search, they'll, they'll debase themselves in all kinds of ways until they get that hit again. So it is addictive. So they go to her because they want the happenstance. They want the thing that they believe will make them happy. But again, it's a happiness that only lasts for so long before the consequence arrives. She's also drinking a wine that results in the deaths of the faithful. She is literally drinking and growing pleasure off of the blood of those who she persecutes, profiting from the death of others. In the case, in one case, she's profiting from the physical death, the, the physical life being drained out of the martyrs of the faithful, but she's also growing drunk off of the spiritual death of the citizens of earth because she has led them astray from the God who can save them. Which reminds me of that passage that, that the pastor is saying that if you're born once, you die twice. You have your physical death and you have the spiritual death, which is damnation. But if you're born twice, you only die once. The physical death, but then you come back alive in Christ. But here she's, she's profiting, she's deriving pleasure from the physical death of the martyrs, from the spiritual deaths of the people that she's supposedly giving pleasure to. So there's other physical clues as to what is important to her. She wears purple, which is again a prophetic image of authority, power. She's wearing scarlet, which is the, the color of blood or sacrifice. In this case, a sacrifice not given willingly. The spilling of someone else's blood. Precious stones, meaning that she takes pleasure in wealth. And pearls, which is an unclean thing. Jesus picks up on that and even runs with it in several parables. A pearl comes from a shellfish. It's unclean. Uh, when Jews used to gather it together, the, there were people that didn't care about such things that would gather them and then sell them to the Gentiles because the Jews themselves had no use for them. They considered them cursed. So she holds sway for the unbelievers. She is herself adorned in her uncleanness, adorned in sin. The mystery of Babylon, the Greek word there used is mysterion, which means a secret or a mystery. It's actually two compound Greek words meaning to shut one's mouth. But in this case, John is revealing that mystery to us. So prophetically, he's talking about a secret that is now revealed as we understand fully who Babylon is, both spiritually and as the seat of power coming. So the interpretation that we can get from this passage of Scripture is that Babylon is one who assumes power and wealth by sacrificing the spiritual lives of the citizens of the earth and sacrificing the physical lives of the faithful. She is traveling and or riding upon top of the beast. So the question is, is she, is she relocated? Is, does this mean that there is a power center developing on one part of the planet 
and then is moving to the literal Babylon on the plains of Shinar to be built later? Or is it just Babylon is already built by this time and she's riding the beast because she believes that she's controlling it? She rides the beast at any rate, imagining herself in control of it. But uh, according to verse 18, she does, Babylon is literally the place, Babylon, the place and see the powers we'll see in just a second. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, underline this, verse 8, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Was, is not, and is about to go come up from the abyss. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the link there that you need to understand that is the word abyss. He is poetically doubling, or uh, he is poetically rhyming an image, not words per se, but an image, a thought, from God, God who is, who, who was, who is, and evermore shall be. He's using those same words in a different context to explain what's going to happen to the beast. Those who live upon the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. This is John telling us that we need to be discerning when we read this passage. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also the seven kings. Five have fallen, or seven kingdoms rather. Five have fallen, one is, one has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. We'll try to decode that in just a second. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the Lamb, capital L, but the Lamb will conquer them because He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Those with Him are called the Chosen, excuse me, are called, chosen, and what? And faithful. So really quickly, back to what we've learned about the dragon. His color is not the sacrificial red. It is the color of fire, the color of war, the color of strife. The name dragon effectively means a great serpent or a, a snake with wings. We think of the, uh, the old English and North image of this great uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex-like creature with wings that breathes fire. But the biblical image is a serpent, is, a, is akin to a snake with something that may look like a bat's wings. But anyway, this particular version, kind of like a, a Greek hydra, has seven heads and crowns. That's the Stephanos or, or ruler's crown. The overcomer's, uh, excuse me, the diadem. That's the one that I... That I at any rate, he has seven crowns, 
ten horns, which are emblematic of power and strength. Ten is prophetic, six plus four, six condition of the fallen, four nature. So he is the ruler of a fallen world. But now we get this extra explainer that his heads are actually mountains or kingdoms, power structures upon the earth, that his horns are coming powers or individual kings who will be given a brief reign and God will allow their reign to happen with one purpose in mind. They have a demonic purpose unknowingly that Satan is orchestrating something, but that God in a divine purpose is moving seven steps ahead in the, in the cosmic chess game we're playing here so that they will be following a divine purpose unwittingly. They will be enticed by Babylon to serve the beast, but they will be brought to engage in a futile war against God. Now, was, is not, will come again. I've seen two explainers for this. The one that I tend to side with is that uh, the dragon will, well, he was, he, he was present with us from the book of Genesis to the battle of Armageddon that we'll see in chapter 19. But what happens to him after the battle of Armageddon? He gets put in chain. He gets imprisoned for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom of Christ. But then he is released prior to a final judgment where he enters the lake of fire forever. So the second thing that I've was is not, but then comes again. It could also be referring to the apparent resurrection of the Antichrist, which was covered in 13.3 and also referenced in Zechariah 11.17. So <clears throat> all, everyone that thinks that, that the, the book of Revelation has to do with John talking about the past, talking about the Roman Empire, and so on, are quick to point out that because these are seven mountains, notice I didn't, the Bible doesn't say hills, it says mountains, uh, that this must mean Rome, which was known as a city of seven hills. But by John's time, there was 11, including, strangely enough, the Vatican. But also, in Europe, other cities, uh, capital cities, built on this seven-hill model included Athens, which actually started that pattern, Barcelona and Madrid, ancient capitals of Spain, Brussels, Bucharest, Edinburgh in Scotland, later on down the road, Istanbul, which of course was Constantinople, which a lot of us forget about. When we think of the Roman Empire, we think of Rome and the western part, from which most of our government uh, and philosophical thought comes from. We forget that there was an eastern half that was not only more prosperous than the city of Rome ever was, but it lasted a thousand years past the fall of Roman Italy. But moving on, Istanbul and Rome. There is the first capital of the Russian Empire, Kiev, which was built on a thousand, uh, seven hills, excuse me. There was Lisbon, Moscow, and Prague, which is also a fairly ancient city. In the United States, when we're talking about cities built, uh, political centers built on seven hills, that may also be a place from which power is transferred from that moves to Babylon. There's Albany in New York. Also Staten Island uh, in particular has seven hills on it, but that's another story. Richmond, Virginia, Providence, Rhode Island, which scares me because that's where Baptists arrived in the North America. 
St. Paul, Minnesota, Seattle, Washington, Tallahassee, Florida, and Washington, D.C. In the Middle East, in Africa, we also see Jerusalem built on seven hills. We also see Mecca in Saudi Arabia, Mumbai. Uh, this is interesting. Tehran in Iran, Ibden in Nigeria, Kampala in Uganda, uh, Yaoundi in Cameroon. All of these are political structures, power structures, capitals at one point or another, uh, from which an evil may arise and transplant itself into Babylon. Or it could again, as the scripture itself points out, instead, refer to the prophetic image of mountains throughout the Bible, which refers to a power structure, a form of government, a kingdom, an empire. And we'll talk about that here. This makes sense prophetically because it ties directly into the meaning behind, this, behind the horns, which are, if the mountains are, are governments, power structures, then the horns are the kings, the rulers. And again, this is referenced in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, this is the historic description and points to the prophetic interpretation. In John's day, it, it, the, the guide, his guided here points out that five of the mountains are fallen. One is and one is yet to come. That's also why it, we're talking about empires here, not literal mountains. The five empires in Israel's history that have already been and are no more are, of course, the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar, the Persian Empire of Cyrus the Great, the Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great. The one that is in John's day is, of course, the Roman Empire. And the one yet to come is the new ruler of the new Babylon. Verse 15, he also said to me, the waters you saw, so he's explaining the prophetic image from, from verse 1. The waters you saw where the prostitute, where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Again, she's seating on a sea of unbelievers. She's controlling those that identify as citizens of the world. The ten horns you saw in the beast will hate the prostitute. So they're going to her for her favors. They're going to her for her pleasures. And yet, what do they do? The prostitute feigns love for profit, but those that go to the prostitute are themselves feigning love when inside they hate her. Poetic justice, as we'll see. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has, this was God's purpose in allowing those kings to rise that was alluded to earlier. God has put it in their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. And the woman you saw in the great city has royal power over the kings of the earth. So these are future rulers with no present kingdom. And I would warn you again, do not speculate about this because there's no way that, that you can ever, until it comes to pass, we will not be able to recognize it. But at any rate, Satan empowers them and he completely controls one of them, the eighth of seven, which is, of course, the Antichrist. 
The waters, as we alluded to from verse 1, represents the nations or the, the citizens of the earth. The future rulers now have no present kingdom. Um, oh, I'm sorry. They are obliged to follow Babylon, but detest her presence. And again, very ironically, poetic justice, if you will, the prostitution is answered by feigned love from her lovers. The rulers and the beast destroy her. They remove, the, they remove her clothing, which are her emblems of power. They rob her of her accumulated wealth. They serve unwittingly again as God's instrument of judgment. They burn her with fire. And one of the images from the Old Testament that is conjured up here is, is, is Jezebel and the dogs that devour her when she dies. From 2 Kings. So this passage and the other sections of Revelation to this point have been a tale of two women. A tale between Israel and the one we've just met in Babylon. We see the woman in the vision, which is Israel, among the heavens. We see Babylon seated atop many waters. Israel is the mother of, depending on your interpretation, Christ and the body of Christ. Babylon is the mother of harlots, of prostitutes, of false worship. Israel is clothed in the sun, moon, and stars. Babylon is clothed by purple, scarlet, and gold. Israel, by her clothing, by what she wears, holds value in the things that are eternal. Babylon only holds value to the earthly things, the temporary things, the things that are temporal. Israel sees her identity in her motherhood of the Messiah. Babylon sees her identity as the corrupting influence that conquers the world. Israel's enemy is Satan and by extension the world under Satan's control. Babylon's enemy is, of course, God, the creator whom she has rejected. And later on, by extension, the rulers. Bless you. The world hates Israel. This is the fallen state of the world, not the redeemed. The world hates Israel. But the world also uses and is used by Babylon. Israel's final destiny is to be united with God, whereas Babylon's final destiny is her utter destruction. Any questions or comments up to where we are thus far? This is a very hard passage to understand, but I hope that I've given you enough information to now see the basic gist of it. When we talk about Israel. When we talk about the book of Revelation, really truthfully, we're talking about a tale between two cities. Jerusalem, or the coming new Jerusalem, built by God, sustained by His grace and His love. And Babylon, the city of mankind, built by humanity in its fallen state and sustained through hatred and through greed. And this is how it plays out, both prophetically and in its resolution.
So for next session, please note that we are drawing close to the conclusion. Read Revelation 18, tie in Isaiah 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51. I want you to ponder these two questions. What happens when any group gets unchecked power? What happens to any group throughout history or any individual who gets unchecked power? And what does God put in place where the Christian is concerned? And this, unfortunately, and much regrettably, this has not been the case in all of our history. But there is something, someone, that God has put in place to prevent us from living in that danger. So what does God put in place to constrain us from becoming that way? Please use your journals. Please continue to call and have contact with your prayer partners. And meet with them for coffee and so forth. Anything else before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you have overcome the world. We thank you that though many challenges are still awaiting us, Lord, on that one great and glorious day, we know that through you, our hope will be realized in an eternity of peace, in the comfort of your embrace, in the certainty of a place where we will have our everlasting home, which will never again know persecution or sorrow or pain, and where the word goodbye will have no meaning. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the certainty that is your love. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray, we dedicate ourselves, and we commit this hour. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.